Well, I'm going to ask if you'll open your Bibles this morning to Psalm 149. I'd like to read the entire psalm and then talk with you this morning about the sacrifice of praise. Psalm 149. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song and his praise in the congregation of the godly ones. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the sons of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing. Let them sing praises to him with timbrel and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the afflicted ones with salvation. Let the godly ones exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the judgment written. This is an honor for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. Before we begin to look into the text very deeply and work our way through it verse by verse, I want you to notice a couple of things. The first thing I want you to notice is to whom the psalm is addressed. It is addressed to the people of God. In verse 2, he refers to them as Israel. In the latter part of verse 2, sons of Zion. In verse 4, he calls them his people. So this psalm is addressed to the people of God. This psalm is addressed to you and to me if we've been redeemed by the blood of God's Son. This is a psalm that has been written for God's people. But I want you to know even more specifically that he identifies his people as godly ones. They are a godly people. Look with me in the latter part of verse 1. And his praise in the congregation of the godly ones. Look with me in verse 5. Let the godly ones exult in glory. And then again in verse 9. This is an honor for all his godly ones. So he's writing to people like you and me. He's writing to people like us who have followed the Lord Jesus Christ. He's writing to a people whom he calls the sons of Zion, Israel, the godly ones. But I want you to notice thirdly before we begin to to dig into the passage itself, notice that there's no name for the author. You know, many of the Psalms, the name of the author is included at the very beginning as a, something of a title or a heading or as an introduction to the Psalm, like David. We think of David as the great, the great Hebrew psalter, uh, psalm writer. But there's no author mentioned here. You know, sometimes God allows us to do things for him that are really substantial, that are in some ways even monumental. And he doesn't allow us to get any of the glory for it. And I think in those times and in those ways, he gets greater glory. 
It's not easy for us to do something for the Lord and, and not to receive a, a commendation or a congratulations or a, that was fantastic. And, and it all given in the best sense, in the best way, all of the glory goes to God. The person that's speaking it knows it. The person that's receiving the, the admonition or the encouragement recognizes that all the glory goes to God. But it's another thing for no one to mention it, for your, for your name to be unknown it's like there's a, a curtain that is put up and we do our work for God and for his glory and for the advancement of his kingdom and then we we step out of the way and the curtain opens up and there the act of worship and the demonstration whatever it may be of God's of God's work and the advancement of God's kingdom is seen and God is glorified and and we're in the shadows looking on it takes a little bit of time to get used to that but I think there's something unusually special about that. And most of us, over time, we grow and mature and develop and we get to the place where we really, we're really, we really are unconcerned whether any of the attention is put on us or not. I think that's, that's something that struck me as I, as I studied this psalm this week and, and I thought about it. It's an interesting psalm in that it describes three different stages of life. It describes a season of life when things seem to be as good as they could possibly be. It describes a season of life where things seem to be as difficult as they could possibly be. And then it describes a season of life, and maybe this season of life runs through both of those prior two seasons where where there's warfare taking place and battles being fought and, and the kind of tumultuous imagery that goes along with fighting a, fighting a war. And in those three phases of life, there's a, there's a thread that seems to run through all of them and it's praise, it's worship, it's exaltation. I want you to notice with me in the first three verses that we should worship the Lord in times of great blessing. We shouldn't be embarrassed or ashamed when God blesses us. What we should do is we should extol his greatness and his goodness and his grace in times of those great blessings. Notice the verbs that he uses. He begins with the phrase, praise the Lord, and, and he concludes with the phrase, praise the Lord. But then he says in verse, in verse 1, sing. Or I'm sorry, yeah, verse 1, sing. Verse 2, be glad. And in verse 3, praise. Sing, be glad, and praise. He says in verse 1, sing to the Lord a new song. When God does a new thing, a great work in our lives, we should sing a song to him. In the Old Testament, often when God would, would provide a, a great victory or he would do something magnificent and, and spectacular for his people, they would sing a new song, a song which extolled the greatness of God and expressed the gratitude for what God had done. And so he says, sing to the Lord a new song. He says, be glad in your maker. God is our maker. We should be glad in him. I think many Christians think that it is spiritual to be Eeyore. Uh, they think that maybe Eeyore is the best character in, in, uh, in, in animation. He, he's much better than Pooh Bear. 
And, and they go, we go around with our shoulders slumped over and we always look through a, a gray side of life. And no matter how things are, no matter how good they may be, they could always be a little bit better. And we grow and develop and mature and we age into a cynical kind of person that finds it very, very difficult to find the good in people, the good in their family, the good in their church, and there's always a rough edge about them. And what he's saying here, let Israel be glad in his maker. The joy of the Lord is our strength. We should be a people filled with joy, not lighthearted frivolity, uh, not a, a casual uh, joking that doesn't have any depth or substance to it. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. What's number two? Joy. I'm of the opinion that the fruit of the Spirit are listed in a particular order for a particular purpose. And joy is the second of the fruit of the Spirit. There, there's something that, that connects joy and singing. There's something with gladness of heart and, and Christian worship. And so he says, sing to the Lord a new song. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the sons of Zion rejoice in their king. Notice in verse 1, he's the Lord. In verse 2, he is our maker and our king. Let them praise his name with dancing. We don't do much dancing here. We probably won't. Maybe we should. It's... It's comparable to what I would call the greeting one another with a holy kiss. In Argentina, he told us in the first service, Brandon did, that, that uh, there the men greet one another with a kiss on the cheek. I made clear to Brandon, we're not in Argentina, brother. And uh, I'll, I might submit when I'm in Argentina. But we don't, we don't do that. And the Israelites were very expressive people, very joyful people. Dancing was a part of their, uh, was a part of their uh, act of, of worship. But, but you see the idea. We are so inhibited. We are so concerned about decorum. And, and there's something to be said for that. Uh, there's, there, there's absolutely nothing to be said for inappropriate activity in congregational worship. But the point that he's making here is there ought to be a note of joy and there ought to be a celebratory aspect of Christian worship. It's not all of a dirge and it shouldn't all be about mourning and ashes and sadness. There ought to be a, there ought to be a great deal of celebration because he is our maker. He is our king. And when we gather together, we're worshiping him for the good things he's done. We're setting Eeyore aside. And we're sitting around the table in the Christian home and there's a lot of laughter and there's a lot of frivolity. And if a little milk gets spilled, so be it. It can be poured up again. You wipe it back up. You get right back to the laughter and the frivolity. But this, this perpetual cloud, this perpetual heaviness is not spiritually healthy and appropriate. Now, of course, there ought to be times where we are in sackcloth and ashes. Of course, there are seasons where we spend focusing on repentance for our sin. But there ought to be significant seasons of Christian joy where we sing a new song to the Lord for what he's done, where we are glad in the God, our maker, where we rejoice in our 
king. Listen to Psalm 75, verses 6 and 7. For not from the east or from the west, and not from the wilderness comes lifting up. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. Don't be afraid to go to work and smile. Don't be afraid of a little laughter in your home. Don't be afraid of asking God to fill you with the Holy Spirit and that he would work in you and through you the fruit of the Spirit, which is joy. So he begins when life is good. Sometimes if you've got that Eeyore disposition like I've got, you've just got to stop for just a moment and just think about, okay, what's good about my life? And if you're serious about it, God will show you a plethora of good things about your life. The second thing that, that I want you to think about this morning is that we should worship the Lord in seasons of great difficulty and suffering. We've been talking about this in recent weeks from the book of 2 Corinthians. And he addresses it here. First, he wants us to see God's perspective on seasons of difficulty and, and suffering. Look with me in verse 4. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. In the midst of great suffering, God still takes pleasure in us. Uh, we look in the mirror and we think, what a motley, what a motley crew we are at Ninth and O Baptist Church. Uh, we think about ourselves and we think, well, God, does, God didn't get much with me. And we forget who we are in Christ Jesus. We have been adopted into God's family. We've been redeemed by the blood of God's son. We've been clothed in a righteousness that is not our own. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He who began a good work in us will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Day in and day out, as a loving father, he is molding us and bending us and stretching us and making us into the kind of person that he wants us to be. We see ourselves and we think, I'm a hopeless case. He looks at us and he says, you're my precious child. You are my treasured possession. The Lord takes pleasure in his people. He matters, we matter deeply to him, more deeply than we could ever contemplate. His love for us is greater than any love any individual person has or if we were loved by the entire world and you could bottle all of that love together, it, it is incomprehensibly less, immeasurably less than the love God has for us. It's an unconditional love. If we are in Christ Jesus, he loves you unconditionally. That means he doesn't love you any more if you pray or any less if you don't pray. He doesn't love you any more if you read the Bible every day or any less if you don't read the Bible every day. Now, the truth of the matter is we don't experience that love in all of its fullness if we don't draw close to him. Now, think of it in this way. Think about a, a child, a wayward child who, who leaves the family and moves across the nation. Do you love that child any more or any less then you love the child who is faithful and obedient to God and, and loving and, and, and an integral part of the family. Well, I would hope not. 
I would hope that our love for our children would not be conditional, that they would know that they love us and that we love them. But that child that's across the the country, living in Seattle or Sacramento, wherever it may be, when the family gathers together for a celebratory family gathering, be it a, a birthday or a holiday, Christmas or whatever it may be, everybody gathering together and going out for ice cream, it's not that they're loved any less, they don't experience the full benefit of that love. In Christ Jesus, he could not love you or me any more than he, than he possibly does. That's his perspective. Uh, he goes on to say in the latter part of verse 4, he will beautify the afflicted ones with salvation. That is, he has saved us and he is continuing to sanctify us. He, he's continuing to mold us into what he wants us to be. He doesn't waste our suffering. He says he will beautify the afflicted ones. And we go through seasons of affliction. Sometimes we go through years of affliction. Disappointment. But God doesn't stand back. He presses in. And he doesn't allow that disappointment, no matter how small or how great it may be, to go wasted. He uses it to conform us into the image of who he wants us to be. And then he says in verse 5, verse 4, that's God's perspective. That's what, he's, what he sees. He treasures us. He, he, he loves us. He, he's not wasting our sorrows. He's beautifying us through our affliction. So he says, in light of that, let the godly ones exult in glory. Let them sing for joy in their beds. Again, joy is not a shallow frivolity that, 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 is, that lasts substance, nor is it necessarily an emotion. It's, a, it's an emotion that runs deeper than pain or pleasure. Sometimes our spirits are depressed, depressed and despairing because we don't sing much. Now, sometimes people have genuine genuine biological things going on in their body. Genuine things that maybe are misfiring in, their, in, in them physiologically. And they genuinely need to go and they need to see a physician. They need to, they need to receive help to, to help level out whatever the, whatever the irregularities are in their body. Sometimes that's genuinely, actually the way that life is working for them. But, but sometimes it's just because we won't sing. We don't have any idea sometimes what singing may do, particularly when the singing is focused on the glory of God. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a sharp two-edged sword in their hand. See, there's something about worship in the word that not only sanctifies the soul, but it enlivens the spirit. It fortifies a disposition in the midst of, of difficulty. Uh, that that double-edged sword, the author of Hebrews had something to say about. The author of Hebrews says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. See, the spirit and the word work together. The word without the spirit is a lecture 
or as an exercise in futility in Bible reading, and it becomes nothing but a study in ancient historiography. But the Spirit isn't going to work without the Word that He has inspired. And so these two work beautifully together, particularly in the heart of the afflicted. So he says, let the praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand. Their lips are singing while they're opening the Bible to read. And the Spirit of God will take the word of God and he will strengthen us and fortify us, even in the midst of, of terrible disappointment and heartache. Now, but there's a, there is a, a third season of life, and I think it's a season of life that, that finds its way through both the good times and the difficult times, through both the, the seasons of blessing and the, and the times of affliction, and that is worship the Lord in the day of battle. In verses 7 through 9, he seems to be setting the context to some degree as a season of warfare. And he's giving exaltation to God and an exhortation to God's people. In the ancient world, their battles were fought on battlefields. When Israel invaded the promised land, there were battles to be fought. There were cities to be taken like, like Jericho and, and other places. And our battle, however, is not on physical battlefield spiritually. Our battle is a spiritual battle. Not that theirs was not, but it plays itself out a little bit differently. Listen to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. See, I think that two-edged sword is like a transition between the second section and the third section. The, the word of God is the sword of the spirit, Paul teaches us. It's the sword of the spirit which encourages us in times of affliction. It is the word of God, the sword of the spirit, which we use on a daily basis in spiritual warfare. The one that we fight is not an earthly enemy. He is a lion who has come only to destroy, a roaring lion. He is a thief that's come only to steal, kill, and destroy. He's a serpent who slithers into our ear and he whispers, can't trust God. If you want to be like God, you can't trust him. Take a bite of the fruit. He tries, to, he tries to cause us to doubt God's word. God said. In fact, Adam and Eve had already been created in the image of God. The very thing he was tempting them that they lacked is the very thing they already had. They've been created in God's image, but you can't trust God because God isn't going to give it to all to you. I wonder, well, how can I, how can I do battle against a foe I don't see? How, how can I carry on a spiritual war with realities that seem so ominous as what we find in the Bible? Well, John put it this way, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in 
the world. He who is in us is none other than the Holy Spirit. He who is in the world is none other than Satan himself. Greater is he who is in us than he who has dominion in the world. And so he, he says, worship the Lord in the day of battle. Take the word of God, which is the sword of the spirit, and plant yourself firmly in a posture of resistance. And when Satan seeks to destroy your family, you fight back with God's word. When Satan seeks to destroy your marriage, you fight back with God's word. When Satan seeks to cause you to become an Eeyore, and all of life is kind of gray and lifeless and nothing ever measures up. Your children have disappointed you. Your spouse has let you down. Your job is unsatisfying. Your church is filled with, with all kinds of problems. Fight back with the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And you fight back with that sword and you fight back with worship. Worship the Lord in the good days of blessing. Worship the Lord in the difficult days of affliction, worship the Lord in the intense days of battle. So we, we come to the conclusion and, and we might ask, as I did, as I thought about this chapter this week, so what? So what? In light of all of this, so what? Well, the first thing I would say about the, about the so what is all the way through the focus is on the Lord and not the psalmist and the people. He's constantly driving them. Look to the Lord. Look to the one enthroned on high. Look to the one who is your maker. Look to the one who is your king. Worship the Lord in a spirit of holiness. Let the godly ones exult in glory, God's glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. It's turning it off of ourself and looking outward. And I tell you, that is difficult for me, quite honestly, to do because I am basically an, an egocentric person who thinks primarily about himself. And God works in my life and he drives me to my knees and he reminds me, look to him. Look to him. My focus should be on him. It's not about me. It's about, it's about him. So, so one thing about the so what is, this psalmist ought to cause us to look to Jesus Christ, seated at God the Father's right hand. The second thing it says is I ought to be a person that sings, and I ought to sing loudly. I ought to sing when I gather together in the congregation of the, of the godly ones, because notice that's exactly what he says, and his praise in the congregation of the godly ones. You know what I'm going to say when you say to me, Pastor, I don't like to sing. You know I'm going to say, we haven't come here to worship you. We have come here to worship God. And so God says, sing to the Lord a new song. So in the congregation, we sing. We sing loud. We sing with great confidence in the words that we're singing, that they're genuinely, actually true. And the God that we worship genuinely, actually exists. We sing on our beds. We sing when we're afflicted. And we sing as we march into battle. We ought to be a singing people. The third thing that I would say is this, that all of life is not equally easy. There are seasons of great blessing, there are seasons of great pain, and there are seasons of great warfare. 
And that's a part of following God. That's a part of following Jesus. It's coming to understand that, that, that these, these preachers who promise us, as I've mentioned before, every day is a Friday. That's so stupid. It's so dumb. It, it, it is so unbiblical. Because it's not Friday every day, is it? Life is filled with great blessings. Great, life is filled with great heartache. And sometimes the heartache is prolonged. And life is filled with great battles to be fought. So what? Focus on God. Be a person that sings. Take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and advance into the enemy's terrain. I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer. And it may be that uh, this morning you've made decision, like in the first service, to, to join. If you would come forward, it just gives us an opportunity to introduce you to someone that can walk you through the membership process. It may be that you would just like someone to pray with you today. And if you would come down, one of our staff members will sit on the front row. We won't leave you in an awkward position uh, standing. And we'll be glad to pray for you and with you. And it may be as we're singing. You would realize, you know, uh, I think I'm Eeyore. And you just stop for a moment and just think, okay. What do I have that I can worship God for? What great blessings? And just in your heart, quietly enumerate a couple of them. Would you stand and let me lead us in a word of prayer? Our Father in heaven, we thank you today that in this very simple psalm written by a person and we don't even know their name, You speak to us so clearly and definitively and, and helpfully. So now in these final moments, Father, I pray in Jesus' name your spirit would work in us for our good and ultimately for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.